Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we look to behold wonderful things from God by His Word this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been talking about 1 Corinthians for many months as it is our practice to work consecutively through books of the Bible to try to get the flow of God's Word for ourselves today. And so that is, we benefit from working through God's Word consecutively instead of kind of hunting and pecking around the Bible and grabbing a little here and a little there. It's a lot easier for me to have a hobby horse when I preach from one book and then another book and then another book and another book. It's a whole lot more in line with, I think, the mind of God, as I believe God to have carried along the authors of Scripture as they wrote God's Word. So it's a whole lot better, I think, for you and for me if we focus on a whole book, and then when we find a really hard text in the book, we're not prone to sort of skip past it or gloss over it because we're working consecutively through the chapters. And so that, if you're new with us, this is where we come to today. We come to chapter 15, and we find that 1 Corinthians 15 is, is indeed the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it is uh, all about the resurrection. It kind of starts with outlining the gospel and what the gospel is of, of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and promised return. And it then begins to, starting in verse 12 and running through the end of the chapter, uh, talk about the, the issues with professing Christians operating only in naturalism and denying the supernatural, such as the resurrection of the dead, and in our text today, which is going to be beginning in verse 35 and ending in verse 39, what we're going to see is the way that the argument shifts that the Apostle Paul makes, it, the way the argument shifts over to, if you don't affirm the resurrection of the dead by faith, there is major holes in the whole Christian experiment. It doesn't it doesn't compute. It doesn't work. And particularly, he's moved from logical argumentation about how we would be pitiable if we didn't have the resurrection of the dead, and yet we preach Christ crucified. He's moved from that into uh, really more of an emotional-based argument where he's going to call those that claim to be Christians. Now, he's not talking necessarily to those that are... He's talking to, about Christ for the very first time. He's writing to the church here, those that claim to be Christians... And if they are asking bad faith questions, not questions in good faith, which I think God always welcomes, but questions in bad faith about whether or not this supernatural thing is going to occur, about whether or not, frankly, whether or not God is, can be trusted to resurrect us, he calls those that operate in bad faith with these kinds of questions within the body of Christ that have already been catechized in the Word and ostensibly united with the church, he calls them fools. He uses the word fool. Aphron is the Greek word. It's used a couple of other places that I'll show you in just a second in the New Testament. He says, you fool, if you're asking these questions in bad faith. And he makes a bit more of an emotional argument, but he also unleashes information about the resurrection that I think for us can be very encouraging this morning. So I want to encourage you this morning from this word by unleashing the power of the resurrection in your understanding and really in your emotions. Now, there's three points to understanding these verses, I think, to help you be encouraged by the resurrection. And 
the first one comes from verses 35 through 41. It's the things about the resurrection that are fairly understandable for us. So it's the way the resurrection is understandable. It's going to be uh, based on things that you've already seen or touched or smelled or experienced. The second point is going to be the things that are beyond our understanding. It's going to come from verses 42 through 44. And it's going to be things that really are beyond our understanding. They're going to be forward-leaning and forward-looking. And then finally, we want to be encouraged in verses 45 through 49 by the way that the resurrection is something glorious and eternally glorious. So if you want to hold on to three words, the first stanza is understandable. The second stanza is not understandable. And the third stanza of this sermon will be glorious. Okay, so if you want to write that down, understandable, not understandable, glorious, you'll be able to follow along with the text as you're reading right away here, verse 35, and then verse 42, and then in verse 45. So I'm going to read this text to you now for all it's worth, and I hope that you'll follow along as I read it out loud, and then we'll proceed without warning in that manner of organization. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. You foolish per aphron. I already told you the Greek word aphron. Fool, you fool. It's it's the case of direct address. That's why there's an exclamation point. Fool. He's not really entertaining this question. He's not entertaining that the question's offered in good faith. Now, verse 46, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, and there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for the fish. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and for stars differs from stars in glory. Star differs from star in glory. That ends our first stanza. These are things that we can understand. Sun, the moon, the stars, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, so on and so forth. Now, verse 42, this gets over into things more difficult to understand. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor. What is raised, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Now, just to pause right there, you see four comparison contrast statements there. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. This is what's kind of beyond our understanding especially the natural to the spiritual. Now, verses 45 through 49, this is where we get into what is glorious, and we'll unpack this as we go along in the sermon, but this this is eternally glorious for the believers. It's eternally woeful for the unbelievers, but listen to how this goes now. Verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He's quoting Genesis 2 there. Matter of fact, he's interacting with Genesis 1 and 2 all the way through here from creation. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now, Pastor Kurt read a text while ago that described the last Adam. The first Adam, the first man, his name is Adam. These texts identify the last Adam as, who is he? Christ. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page there in case you're newer to this line of thinking. Maybe it hasn't been taught to you previously. The biblical authors understand that the last Adam or the ultimate man, the last man, is uh, it, there is Adam is a type 
of man. He is man indeed, but he's a type of the ultimate man, which is Christ. And so we can think of the first Adam and the last Adam, or the first man and the last man. And so there is a, a, a theological comparison and contrast between Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus. And so there's, there's something to work with there here in just, in just a moment. And he mentions it twice in 1 Corinthians 15 and one other time in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So you may want to write that down and read Romans 5 later and make those comparisons because I won't have time to read you that text today in its fullest. Um, now, verse 45 again, since I kind of got stalled out. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So you see this, this kind of corporate solidarity that we have with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that kind of corporate solidarity, or some might call it a federal headship, that kind of headship that Adam has in the human race is like and dislike the kind of headship that Christ has of the spiritual race of believers. You see the comparison and contrast? Because it's very important to understand the sermon that you kind of get that right away. So again, through verse 41, kind of understandable about the resurrection. Through verse 44, mind blown. <laughs> And then through verse 49, the gloriousness of this new race of human beings in the resurrection. Okay, so without further ado, let's get, let's get on it. I said I would do that without qualification, but I felt qualification it just was needed there, so I did it anyway. Okay, so the first point here is what is truly, truly understandable to us. And I guess I really ought to show it to you one more time. Look at verse 37. What you sow is not the body that will be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Verse 38, for God gives a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh, not all skin is the same from one kind to another and another to another. And he compares that to heavenly and earthly bodies, that there are differences. And then he's really interacting with Genesis chapter 1 whenever he says that there are stars and sun and moon and different stars and different types of this. He's, in other words, what he's, what he's arguing here is something that's very understandable to you. He's saying, you can be sure of the recreation because of the creation. When you go out and you look around and you see the, the order, obviously variety, true, but within kinds you see the ordering of the universe. You look at the creation, you see the order. What you see is the imprint of God. And what is understandable for us is that just as much as creation has a creator with a big C, so does recreation have a creator. Just as you can understand from viewing creation and the general revelation that is all that you can see, you can see the image of God, for example, in human beings. The Bible says we're created in His image. Now, sin has marred that image. We are, we're showing the effects of sin. And the full growthedness of sin, as the Bible says, is death. And so, one day we will die because our bodies are trapped in sin. We're sinners. We're seeing decay because of it. But that image of God is not non-existent. We are created in the image of God. And so because we're created in the image of God, we, we know eternity. It's been placed in the hearts 
of us as men and women. We have eternity in our heart. We know it exists, whether we want to rebel against it or accept it. We know it exists. By all that we see in the ordering of things, we know that creation screams something made this happen. We, in our rebelliousness, need to come out of our rebellion and into an attitude of repentance and belief that just as sure as there is a creator, there is one that will create the recreation or the re- in the resurrection. Just as much as we only know about that by looking back at it and observing it with observational science, so will we only be able to answer detailed questions about what the glorified bodies in the resurrection will look like after it happens. No, no more than could we have fully observed and appreciated and understood the beauty of the creation that God made, everything you see. Springtime's a great time to see the beauty of the creation, right? No more than you could have, have foreseen that before you just saw it. Can you really even know intelligible questions to ask about an imperishable body, about what it's going to look like on the other side? We have a prototype in Jesus, and we'll get to that in a moment, but we don't even know good questions to ask. I mean, we are in the nursery of the study of eternity. Do you understand that? And in fact, that is part of how we get there. The Bible makes it very clear that we don't get to believing in recreation through observational science. There's not much to observe yet. We get to recreation and belief in recreation through trust or belief or, in fact, faith. Faith is our victory, as the old song says. Now, it's not faith that is unwarranted. If you have observed enough observational science to understand creation makes sense to me, God made all this happen, then you can parlay that understanding over into, well, I understand that the Creator is going to make stuff new and it's going to recreate, so I believe in the resurrection of Christ, and I believe that He's going to resurrect me. And I don't really understand all of it, and i got a bunch of questions, but I believe in the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And I believe that in bodily resurrection, it is going to be different than the current body, true enough, but it's going to have an identifiable factor with me. I'm not insignificant. I'm going to exist in perpetuity for all of eternity future. But the the unification of the body with the Spirit that's going to occur is going to be channel-locked. It's going to be together in an inseparable, undying, unending, unsinning, unpainful, uncrying kind of way. That's what eternity is going to be like. And that's what we're getting out of this. We can understand that that's coming because of what's already come. But we can't make sense out of it by looking back because it hasn't happened yet. And so we have to believe God will do what he says he will do. This is why Matt D'Amico titled his CD with all his songs on it, A Hope in Every Promise. Because your hope is in every promise of God by faith. The promises that he's laid out for you are just as real and finished in his eyes as the promises that he has already completed in eternity past and in the things that you can observe. Do you believe that? Just as assuredly as you're sitting there with a fleshly body that's outwardly wasting away, just as assuredly will you as a believer have a glorified body that is like unto the glorified body of Jesus Christ that appeared during the walk to Emmaus and all the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. You're going to have a resurrection. And you believe that because of what you can understand. So to kind of pull together this, this first point, we see in verse 35, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? And it's, it's, <laughs> Paul's not entertaining it, really. 
He's just laying it out there. It's singular. Somebody probably asked that, or somebody could ask that, or somebody had asked it at some point. And he says, this is foolish, foolish person. And he says, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And he uses a, a metaphor of, of seed for that, putting it in the ground. And this is, not, a, this is not, not an agriculturally precise metaphor. He's saying, you take a thing, you put it in the ground, and you don't know how it happens, but all of a sudden, it pops up, something grows. And maybe you know how it happens if you're really into studying this sort of a thing, but you don't really know everything about how it happens. I mean, something makes it happen. The earth is right. The seed is right. They say, you don't really know, but, but it's, he says it's like when we die. We, we bury the seed, the body, and it is identifiable when it comes up, and yet it's way more glorious than anything that you could ever, ever hope for when you planted that seed in the ground. Dead rise. Dead rise. That's why when we baptize people, which if you've never followed Christ in baptism, I would urge it. We say buried with Christ, rise to walk a brand new life. It's why we, we are literally symbolizing through the ordinance that Christ left us, resurrection. Buried and alive. And he says, you know this by observational science, by kernels of grain, by seeds that pop up. You know what comes from the seed. And he says, that's, God gives a body, verse 38, as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And he says, just like there's, there's these different nuances about the creation today, there will be an eternity too, but, but no matter. Listen, quit, quit it with the questions. This is by faith. We're going there, and it's going to be great. You believe God for that? And it's not that, I don't believe it's that, it's not that the Lord isn't interested in your questions. It's that he can sense the good faithedness of our questions, or the bad faithedness of our questions. And in this sense, I believe what he's saying is there's a whole lot of stuff that you're going to have to see it to be able to begin to explain it, and you're not even going to be able to explain it. At least that's the, that's the impression I get from this text. So, so a couple of applications from this, this first section. Do you believe Genesis 1 and 2 when it says that God created the heavens and the earth? Because if you don't believe that, you're going to have a really, really tough time with this. It, it's built on one another. There are locking points here. And I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that, and I hope that you do too, Genesis 1 and 2. So if I'm going to share the gospel with you this morning, it begins where God begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He has always existed. This is one of the reasons that the enemy takes such great pains to attack the origins of the universe and to eliminate any kind of prime mover in Aristotelian thinking or to remove any kind of first things or eternal being. The closest we can get as we talk about these things is something has been intelligently designed or there's some alpha point back there. But what the Christian worldview says is that God did it. And there's lots of discussions about the nuances and, and, and finer points of what all God did, but God did it, and all the variety that you see was created by God. We can understand that as Christians. We affirm it. And he says you can also understand that the recreation is just as assured. So ask questions in good faith application here believe in the creation because it's central to your being encouraged with the resurrection insofar as the things that you can uh, understand. Ezekiel 37, 3 for a cross-reference. Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? These bones got up and walked around. And Ezekiel the prophet tells us that there will be resurrection, that dead things can come back to life. And this is not the finer points of the body that we will have, but instead it is the faith that we will have a body. If you sow in faith, you'll reap a harvest of faith by grace alone in Christ. Fear the second death. Treasure the second life. In an installment type of way, 
in an inauguration type of way, you as a believer will have a second birth. You have been born again, but this spiritual reality will be given sight at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The dead in Christ shall be born again with a union of the body and spirit in a glorified body. It will be identifiable as you, but fashioned by the Creator to be better, unending, different, unpainful, sinful, and confused, like Jesus' reborn body. He's our prototype. So believe in creation that you may be able to believe in the recreation. Take an inventory of all that you see and then look up and see Christ. He's your only hope of a second birth and avoiding that second death. See, none of us avoid the natural death. None of us avoid that. Well, when Christ comes, there'll be some living, but that's another sermon for another day. That's not today's sermon. In our thinking today, where each it's appointed for man wants to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews 9 says, out of each person, one out of every one people will die. We will pass away. And so we need to address that natural death now because we want to avoid, as the gospel say, the second death, and we want to be a part of being born again or of eternal life. And that's, that's the first point. Second point, a little more quickly, resurrection is beyond your current understanding. Look down at verse 42. So you understand the creation. It's beyond your current understanding. Verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So he, he says here, is, if there is a natural body, and there is, uh, we, can, we can see, then there is a resurrected body. There was a kind of dualism of the day in the Greco-Roman world that he might have been speaking against here. There's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of, a, of negativity toward the body as a sort of a, a machine. It came back in the Enlightenment to no good avail that we're sort of trapped in this cage Uh, famous quotes from Descartes and different Enlightenment thinkers that makes you think that the body is the problem, but everything's beautiful inside. It's really bad theology. What God says is that east of Eden, after the fall of our first parents, that we're all sinners. And so internally, we're messed up. We're not basically good getting better. We're basically bad needing redeemed. So that's the the central thesis to the Christian worldview that is different than what the remnants of modernity will give you and what you're probably thinking about and interacting with today if you don't yet have a Christian worldview. And what we need to get back to is a better understanding of the doctrine of man so that we might live out a more beautiful and joyous understanding of the doctrine of God who redeems us from our sin. Frankly, Christianity has nothing unique to offer if man is basically good getting better. The Christian worldview screams that we are decaying because of sin, and that we are going to be made new because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so there is an aspect to resurrection that then goes over into what we can't quite understand. If you look at these verses, it says that you are sown perishable, but raised imperishable. If you look at these verses, it says you're sown in dishonor and raised in honor. This is kind of a tough phrase, I think. Alistair Begg helped me at a couple of points in understanding this in his sermon on this, this text, he said that this word can also intimate a loss of citizenry rights, like losing your rights as a citizen. And so it's dishonorable. So you're raised losing your rights. And certainly when we die, we do lose our rights, don't we? I mean, we, we don't get to say much else about what happens at that point. 
another way of looking at this is the book of Numbers 11:19 reminds us that to a Jewish person, to touch a dead person is dishonorable. It makes you unclean. So there's something dishonorable in death, probably just the recognition of the connection of the sin nature leading to natural death. That's probably as far as it has to go for us, though it can go further. So sown in dishonor, raised in honor. So just as much as when we die a natural death, we lose our, our, say, our say in things, we, we lose our, our dignity, um, we, at the same time, when we are resurrected, we are resurrected in honor and in the glory of, of Christ. And so it's sown in dishonor, raised in honor. It's getting into things that we just can't quite understand. It says sown weak, raised strong. Fairly straightforward. We're sown, we're, we're laid to rest, sown into the earth like a seed would be dropped into the earth. And at some point, at some undetermined time, it's going to sprout up and there's going to be the fruit of eternal life. So you're, you're sown perishable, raised imperishable. You're sown in dishonor, you're raised in honor. It says here, you're sown in weakness, you're raised in strength. And we see inaugurated installments of this born againness of our lives now as believers, don't we? We don't see the full-throatedness of it with a glorified body, but we see the inauguration of it, the first installments of being born again now, don't we? We see the fruit now. In our love for one another, we see the fruit. In our serving of one another, we see the fruit. The church, in its brighter and better points, is a witness and a light to those that watch. And they say, I don't know if I believe in a creator or not, but I believe in you. You're doing something that's got to be motivated by something way different than anything that I've read or known about. I tell this story often in the church, but Benjamin Franklin was no, no Orthodox Christian. But he would often be spotted in crowds when George Whitfield was preaching. George Whitfield was more famous than Michael Jordan I mean, he was more famous than, than any famous athlete or person today. George Whitfield lived in the 1700s prior to the American Revolution, and he was extremely well-known. You just don't know about him now because we've, well, we tend to forget about people after they die, don't we? It's just the nature of things. I mean, for a while, we put flowers on graves, but after a while, we just forget about people or those that remembered us pass away as well. It's the truth, is it not? I mean, I'm not trying to be morbid or anything. It's just the truth. We do well to face it. The better times we will remember those who have gone before us, but eventually names will get fuzzy and generations will come and pass. So that's what happened with Whitfield. But Whitfield's living witness is this, when Benjamin Franklin, a name that we know better because of American history, he would attend these revivals. People would wonder, why is he there? A printer, a famous thinker. And Franklin, whether or not it's true, I don't know, but I can see it being true, and it's helpful here. Benjamin Franklin was asked, we know you don't believe this stuff. Why do you keep coming to listen to this man, George Whitfield, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, this faith-based, you know, Looney Tunes stuff, if you don't have these sorts of basic doctrines, the creation and the recreation. And Benjamin Franklin said, you're right. I don't believe it, but he does. His point, brevity is the soul of wit, his point in brief was just simply this. That man is so committed to that that I want to keep coming to listen to him to see if there's something here. I mean, he is so convinced of the resurrection of the dead. He's so convinced of the gospel that I'm compelled to listen to this guy. You know, I hope that that can be said of me. I don't know that it always can be, but I hope that when the final analysis of the days of my life come, and you're looking back on it, I hope that you know that I believe the things that I preached, that I believe them in my gut. Like, I want that more than anything else, because even if you don't believe it, you believe that I do. 
And that's something. That's something. I don't know if Benjamin Franklin ever came to faith or not, but I'll tell you this. It wasn't for the lack of George Whitfield believing the gospel and sharing it in no uncertain terms. That's what I want for you. You will be my boast, and I hope that I am yours as we boast in Christ. For I don't know of anything else that we can boast about that doesn't lead us into pride and sin. I want you to believe this gospel. And I want you to believe that I believe this gospel. The resurrection is beyond our understanding. If you're operating with a naturalistic worldview only, you won't catch it. I don't know if Benjamin Franklin did. There was a man named Nicodemus that at the point in which he asked the questions I'm about to read, he didn't either. The Gospel of John chapter 3 says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jewish people. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And he's kind of flattering Jesus. And this is how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. And we have it, it's, it's something we can read about in John chapter 3 in the Bible. Jesus answers Nicodemus, he says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can I mean, same thing that you would say naturalistically, right? How can a man be born when he's old? I mean, he's just thinking logically, right? He's, he's thinking, how, how does, I, Based on what I've seen and observed, how can a man be born when he's old? I don't. And then he says, he says the question that we would naturally think. He says, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, you, you laugh because you kind of have probably heard enough of the vistages of Christianity, even culturally, to, to kind of know the rest of the story. But in the first century A.D., that's a perfectly legitimate question. Jesus, what do you mean by being born again? I see no evidence of this observationally. I don't know what in the world you're talking about, being born again. Now, he should have seen it based on the prophecies of the Old Testament. True enough. But nevertheless, just on what he could observe in flesh and blood, even if there were claims on resurrection, it wasn't to eternal life. I mean, people died, people stayed dead. That's the nature of things. He says, what are you going to do to be born again? Go back into the womb. And, and Jesus then answers Nicodemus like this, John chapter 3, for the reread. He says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of dust is dust. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So these are spiritual things he's talking about. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? How can they be? Listen to me, friends. There are degreed professionals that are missing this gospel, and there are those of you that are foreordained to be in this room this morning to receive it. You can receive this gospel that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. It comes like the wind. We hear it, but we don't know where it comes from. We feel it, but we can't quantify it. The Spirit of God comes upon human beings and regenerates your heart inside, and the first fruit of that is for you to say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for you to confess Him before people. And so this morning, if you believe, it is because of the Spirit's work in you. If you are inclined towards spiritual things and not just fleshly things, it is because of the regenerative power of the Spirit in you. What is it that Jesus said to the apostle Peter? Matthew 16 records it. Flesh and blood didn't tell this to you, Peter. God revealed it to you. 
If you see this, you don't see it based simply on natural arguments. As persuasive as the understandable can be for understanding, for believing that which is is not understandable yet, you won't ultimately get to faith strictly on logic. Nicodemus is not wrong. You will get to faith because the Spirit has opened the eyes of your heart that you might behold wonderful things. Glorious things, which is our third point this morning, is being encouraged by the resurrection, by that which is eternally glorious, by glorious things. Look at verse 45 and following. Verse 45 and following. Verse 45, it says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living breathing. He's a living, living being. It's, he's quoting Genesis 2-7. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, or Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Okay, good enough. This is glorious. Adam led us to death. Christ leads us to life. Got it, got it. Okay. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So we have to die first before we get there. So clearly by faith. So the installment of being born again is now. The realization of being born again is in eternity. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first with the natural, and then the spiritual, verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. First man, first Adam from earth, second man from heaven. Remember uh, John chapter 1, verse 1? Maybe this is not familiar to you. I shouldn't say remember. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, Christ, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And the word Jesus Christ that walked on earth alive leaves us with a reliable word, the words of Scripture, by which we might know Him and let Him be known to others. And so this is, this is what's being indicated in verse 47 and in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of born the image of man of dust, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, and he's making an emotional argument because we can't see that yet, but we believe it by faith. He's saying just as much as that which you understand, that you were born of Adam, you affirm the doctrine of creation that God created, you affirm the first sinfulness of Adam when he rebelled against God's command and suffered the consequences of that, even though he was following the wisdom of the serpent that said, surely you won't die. We know Adam did die east of Eden in a frustrated existence after he had experienced the manifold blessing of God in the garden. He's now east of Eden, and we know that we've all been east of Eden, and we know that we have been impure and corrupted and therefore are perishable. And so this is us. This is our every man's story. And just as much, O believer, just as much as that is your story, if you have faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, so will your recreated story be that you have an imperishable, honorable, powerful, spiritual instead of natural body. Do you believe that? That's encouraging. That's encouraging. I'm going to tell you, the Enlightenment has done a lot of good things for us with regard to to medicine and thinking and observational science. I'm no person that looks at the experiences and studies and academic work of the last 400 years and turns my nose at it. I don't want to go back to the days before penicillin or anything else. But as with every great advancement in humankind, if every epoch in human history, we both have pros and we have cons. And one of the cons is, is that we look at things so naturally that we can be anesthetized to that which is supernatural. 
We look at what we can see so much that we can be immune, anesthetized to that which is yet unseen. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things unseen, Hebrews chapter 11 says. And then it chronicles those that have gone before us in faith, like Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the way down the line, the men and women of faith in Hebrews 11. Read it. It'll be encouraging to you. This resurrection is so encouraging if you believe it. It changes your life to believe that the resurrection, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is a down payment and an insurance on your resurrection. This correlation between Adam and Jesus helps us to see that just as surely as you are marked by sin in Adam, are you remade by, in salvation by Jesus Christ. He has done that for you, and he has done that for me, and that is a glorious, glorious thing. The parallel between Adam and Jesus is made clear yet again here for the last time in Corinthians in verses 45 through 49. You must die first, and then you enter into life eternal. By faith in this life, you ratify the motion that God has made in your life. You say the amen. You don't, you don't play the part of the fool, but you say amen, and you trust the man from heaven over the man of dust. You don't trust your first father, Adam, you don't trust yourself alone as you have followed in the sinly image and nature of Adam, but you, instead of trusting from dust to dust, you trust the man of heaven that has come down and the glory that has now filled your soul. You shall bear his image if you will only trust him. I began this sermon today with the encouragement that comes from the resurrection and the idea that there is a good faith way of asking questions of the Lord and there is a bad faith way of asking it. And I want to end there uh, this morning. God welcomes your questions, unbeliever. He welcomes your questions. And I know this because throughout the questions we have a, throughout the scripture, we have a bevy of questioners. They're asking questions in good faith. But he comes down on believers that ought to know better. He comes down on an impotent church who doesn't have Whitfields in the pulpit, but has naturalists in the pulpit. He comes down on the pitiable fools who preach a gospel that is no gospel at all. He comes down on those of us that claim to be at the church at Corinth or the church at Mount Vernon, and we don't even have a, a basic affirmation of the resurrection of the dead. And he calls them fools, same as he calls the guy that stores up treasure on earth instead of treasure in heaven and builds barns so he can house his stuff, and the day of his death will be the next day, same as he calls him a fool. He calls us fools. That is what the point of this emotive and direct language is. And if you have, have been at church for perhaps many, 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 many years, but you've never affirmed the basic foundational truth that God is a God of the supernatural and that He is a God of the resurrection and that His creativity and creation will be on display in the recreation. If you've never believed that in your heart, let today be the day of salvation for you. You must be born again. The Spirit must come upon you. And your being born again now bears fruit and it is seen as fruitful to the uttermost when you get your glorified body and spend eternity with Jesus Christ. We do not want anyone here to operate strictly naturally. Fear the second death and separation from God eternally and embrace eternal life that comes only in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. 
not of your works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. The Bible gives us this clarity, and we have this opportunity in the Lord. Won't you trust him? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the encouragement that we have by the promise of a resurrected body. For we have not believed, help our unbelief. Guide us from what we understand to embrace by faith that which we are yet to fully understand and to behold wondrous, glorious things from your word. Help us to be a church that is identifying those which are born again and is welcoming them into the church and help us to be a church that is seen by the watching world as having been made new, that they might Behold your name now and forevermore. We want to trust you this morning with these things, and we ask you to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.